Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rock and good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies Tim, Treg, and Michael. Three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll songs of all time and other interesting musings and ruminations about the music and the rockers who inspire us. This Rocktail Hour is brought to us by Tim, who's going to bring us a classic, well-known Jethro Tull song <laughs> called Broadsword. <laughs> Thank you for the facetious introduction, because I'm a huge Jethro Tull fan. and Me too. I had never heard of this song until I recently bought a, a CD of um, various songs, and when I came across this song, I immediately fell in love with it. Hey, before we get into this, do you mind if I just interject? You know, since you're picking a, an obs- a very obscure song by, you know, even to Toll fans, it's obscure. Mm-hmm. And we're calling it the greatest rock and roll songs of all time. I think we need to let Michael tell us what he found out about uh, Here I Go Again. <laughs> I was uh, doing some searching for the 100 greatest rock and roll songs of all time. And the first list that I hit upon listed Here I Go Again as number So there's vindication for Rocktail Hour number one when I got abused for choosing Here I Go Again by Whitesnake. I would would pick any Jethro Tull song (laughs) over any Whitesnake song ever. And I don't really dislike Whitesnake, but I would like to... I'd like to see the source because if it's, you know, Beavis and Butthead's top 100 best <laughs> rock and roll songs of all time, I'm not sure that it counts. All right, on with the All track. right, sorry. Yes, this really is, uh, I think, an obscure song. It's off a, a, an album that didn't do very well in the United States. Actually, did it did very well in, in Europe uh, and particularly in Germany, which furthers my theory that Germans love Ian Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> Before I start the rock tale, I kind of wanted to do something a little different tonight. Normally, we go right into the song, but I'd like to do something that kind of leads up to doing a podcast about Jethro Tull. Now, I'm not a big David Letterman fan, but I am a fan of the top 10 list. And so I came up with a top 10 list of my own. Top 10 greatest rock and roll uh, faux pas of all times. So here we go. And if somebody wants to do a drum roll, I will go ahead and start. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Okay, number 10, Pat Boone and Heavy Metal. I don't know if you guys knew this, but Pat Boone released a cover of various heavy metal songs in 1987. This was after he kind of um, called out the heavy metal industry for their uh, explicit and oftentimes uh, sacrilegious lyrics. So that's number 10. Number 9 on my list would be Hair Bands. Number 8 would be The 80s. Greatest, one of the greatest rock and roll faux pas of all time was that entire decade. Uh, number seven would be Spandex. Number six, we've talked about this, Kiss Goes Disco. And now I've got the song, I Was Made for Loving You. If you've ever heard that song, that is quintessential disco. And apparently for a hard rock band, that was their number one song of all time. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble for this one, Ario Speedwagon. I don't like Ario Speedwagon. Number four. What do you call him a faux pas? Come on. Number four. Uh, is Yoko Ono singing anything? Now I don't have anything I'm, against. I'm with you. Yeah, don't have no anything argument. against Yoko Ono. She's a fine person. Um, she ruined the Beatles, but um, Yoko Ono singing anything would be number four. Number three would be Paul McCartney singing with Michael Jackson. So number two, in 2011, there was a small group of friends that got together and started doing podcasts about the classic rock and roll songs of all times. <laughs> uh, the first song that was chosen was White Snake. 
I'll move on. 11th greatest song of all time. 11th greatest song of all time. That's sort of not very ironic anymore. Um, <laughs> the number one greatest faux pas of all time, and, and I do sort of feel a little bit serious about this, is that uh, in 1989, Jethro Tull was awarded the Grammy for the best hard rock or metal performance. That's right. And uh, that was for the album Crest of a Name. Now, I have nothing against Jethro Tull winning a Grammy. I am a diehard Jethro Tull fan. But Jethro Tull is, is not a hard rock or heavy metal band. And in fact... I think they are. I, I think they can rock, but I think they... I think they um, span across multiple genres yes. of music and I would have a hard time pigeonholing them into into a category especially a category that that included people such as Metallica and ACDC and Jane's Addiction Jethro Tull seems uh, just a little bit oddly out of place in that category you know I chalk it up as a lifetime achievement award for a great band that didn't get other uh, Grammys that's yeah. how I reconcile it actually the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences took a little bit of heat when they awarded this Grammy to Jethro Tull for being sort of out of touch. So the idea that they were awarded this Grammy maybe out of sentimental feeling is probably not too far off. When Alice Cooper and Lita Ford awarded the Grammy, there were audible booings <laughs> in the audience. And I don't take that so much as an indictment of, of Jethro Tull. I think Jethro Tull is, is pretty well respected mm. in, in that industry and among artists in the industry. But I think what it, what it was saying is, look, you put them in this category where maybe they were out of place and then you awarded it when you've got people like ACDC and Metallica that, that fill the bill of hard rock and heavy metal much more smoothly. I think that the real faux pas again there was that, first of all, that I would make an argument that they should be given the Grammy for the greatest band in the universe, but that's just me. So to, to again, pigeonhole them in that category was a little bit out of place. Now, Broadsword, as we've said, is one of Toll's lesser known songs, but it's one of my favorites. It has a thumping beat, and it has melodramatic lyrics, and, and these are the kind of elements that, that really appeal to me in music. It has a distinct medieval feel, and, and there's a reason for that, because the song itself um, is, is a reference to things that would have happened in the British Isles uh, back during medieval times. Um, it's almost like um, Conan the Barbarian meets Jesus Christ Superstar. Just a little bit. It's it's kind of uh, kind of that feel. The only flaw that I think that the song has is again, and we've talked about this in in recent podcasts. It has a a, a sort of '80s flaw where they um, they use the synthesizers to um, <laughs> they use synthesizers to sort of do a fanfare of horns that is just really 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 dated this point and for, for a flute for a flute player to use synthesized yeah horns, it's strange <laughs> yes yeah. and well and you bring up an excellent point there is not uh one measure of flute in this song it's got a really strong uh bass drum beat and it's got some great great guitar work it also i think showcases ian anderson's vocal ability um Ian Anderson is not the greatest singer in the world, but he has a lot of charisma when he sings. And this one actually, I think, does complement his voice in a way that other songs don't. I'm never going to, to claim that Ian Anderson has a beautiful voice, but this song seems to complement his voice uh, very, very well. Um, it was released on the Broadsword and the Beast album back in 1982, and um, immediately it just kind of 
received lukewarm acceptance here in the States. Very, very popular in Europe. It was it was quite successful in Europe and again in Germany. The story behind this song lies in the history of Britain. Uh, Ian Anderson was inspired by the recurring theme of the British Isles being invaded uh, by just about everyone uh, <laughs> over a several hundred year period, but particularly invaders from Northern Europe. And we're probably talking you know, about the Vikings. This song broadsword tells a story of such an invasion, and it tells it from two perspectives, from the invaders' uh, perspective as well as the invadees. And it starts out uh, from the perspective of, of the people living on the British Isles. And it says, I see a dark sail on the horizon set under a black cloud that hides the sun. Now, the music in this song is very well crafted. And it really evokes imagery of, of somebody standing maybe on a morning, uh, maybe at sunrise. And um, they're just seeing the ships coming out uh, from the fog out on, on the ocean. And, and they see these ships coming in and recognizing that they're about to be under attack. Um, it talks about get up to the roundhouse, and that is a reference um, to bunkers that were built uh, during that time period. Um, they're called brocks, and they're usually built right next to um, the sea where people who live in that area can get into this roundhouse. It's sort of like a, a, a smokestack type building, only it's much wider Women and children would be sent there. The men would gather their weapons and go fight. Uh, they could even keep livestock. And um, if you got on the internet and, and search the term Brock, or even broadsword by Jethro Tull, for that matter, you can go out and see some pictures of these old uh, forts that they've built. Uh, and they're quite interesting. Uh, I'm sure the, the archaeology of these things is interesting to a lot of people. The second half of the song tells the story of the invaders, and the lyrics state, Bring me my broadsword and clear understanding. Bring me my cross of gold as a talisman. Bless with a hard heart those who surround me. Bless the women and children who firm our hands. Put our backs to the north wind, hold fast to the river. Sweet memories to drive us on for the motherland. What I get from this song is that each side obviously feels the, the correctness of their position in this upcoming battle. The invaders, for whatever reason, feel like they're guided by a purpose, uh, and clearly the people that are being invaded feel like they're defending uh, their homes, and, and, and that is a moral just position. What I like uh, about the words and the lyrics of this song is in each verse, told from the perspective of, of each of the participants in this upcoming battle, it talks about, bring me my broadsword and clear understanding, Bring me a cross of gold as a talisman. And the recurring theme in all wars or battles uh, seems to be that uh, my battle or, or, or my endeavor in this upcoming violence is guided by some kind of a higher purpose. And, and each of the participants in this upcoming battle feel like, again, they're driven by a higher purpose and they're guided by a moral compass and, and, and even uh, guided by someone that or something uh, greater than themselves. God's going to be on my side Absolutely. for both of them. And, and, and that can be a rationale, and it, it can also be a motivation, you know, as, as you're going into battle. But the song itself, uh, I don't want to give it too much of a deep meaning because it, it's not really a, a deep song. It's a, just a good hard rock song. And one of the more uh, interesting songs of Jethro Tull, because again, it, it's, it's not so much in the style of many of their songs. It, it doesn't have a real folksy, Side. Even some of Jethro Tull's um, harder, uh, harder rock songs have a folk feel, and this one is, is primarily just 
good hard rock. It's got a great tune to it. That's that's what really appeals. And and because I, I thought I knew Jethro Tull and then to come across this song many years after I'd been a fan was was really great. And I and I like the story about it. So one of my favorite stories about Jethro Tull is uh, how they got their name. My understanding is that uh, when they were starting out, that uh, as soon as, when they would get a new gig, they would choose a new name. Mm-hmm. And so the first time that they got asked back was after they played as Jethro Tull. And so that name stuck. And I don't know if this is true, but I've always heard over the years that Jethro Tull has nothing to do with anybody in the band, but that Jethro Tull is actually the man that invented the plow. Is that right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's correct. Although I am sort of disclaiming here that if it's not correct, uh, I'm not going to argue with you. (laughs) That's what I've heard. What year did this song come out? This was 1982. This was really, again, an awkward time transitioning from the hard rock of the 70s into the 80s and still trying to remain up to date with the preference of, of, of the public. And, and I don't think that this album was accepted. In fact, Ian Anderson will tell you it wasn't accepted because it, it really didn't transition well from the 70s and into the 80s. What is it about the 80s music, early 80s music, that you don't like? Is it the attempts to incorporate synthesizer? Well, I like 80s music. The problem was the people that tried to take their music from the 70s and transition it into the 80s and match what was coming out as original work from other people. Um, I don't have a problem with music from the 80s. I, I'm a fan of people like Howard Jones and Depeche Mode and Oingo Boingo and some of those some of those other bands that weren't what, at the time, what I considered standard rock and roll bands. I heard about a study that was done to determine what was the best music breed rats. <laughs> Apparently it's Jethro Tull. <laughs> rats breed faster if you play Jethro Tull. Wow. That is some. That is a random piece of trivia. <laughs> that is great. Um, I have been to Jethro Tull twice. Uh, the first time I went with a really good friend uh, just right out of high school. Um, and the next time I went was in 2009 with a very good friend from high school. And when we went in 2009... We went to the Abravanel Hall in Salt Lake City. And the Abravanel Hall is not a small venue, but it's not nearly the kind of venue that Jethro Tull would have played in in the past. And it's designed for the Utah Symphony, and the acoustics are incredible. But we were up in a, in a balcony, and we got caught in a bass pit, and they were really jamming on locomotive breath. <laughs> And you could literally feel the seats shaking, all, almost like the sense around in those movies from the 70s where it was the earthquake and the whole theater shook. It felt just like that. Awesome. About half, the best seat in the house. Yeah, then. about halfway through the song, the light fixture above fell, hit me in the head, bounced off and hit my friend in the head. Wow. And everybody around us started to cheer. It was fantastic you know, because <laughs> the lights are falling out at this point. <laughs> Well, I pick up the I pick up the fixture and put it on my head and continue to you know to rock. I'm wearing it like a crown, and the usher from the Abravanel Hall comes up and just uh, apologizes profusely that the lights have now fallen on me and my buddy. So afterwards, you know, after the concert, it was just a great time. And I walked up to the usher, and again, she's just apologizing. And I said, you know, I'm not going to sue by any means, but if you were to uh, insinuate to management that there might be a lawsuit unless we got backstage to meet the band. And she was all for that, but it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> the last time I saw them, uh, Ian Anderson had a broken leg Oh, because he had fallen off the stage in South America, I think. <laughs> so 
that's a totally different experience to see Ian Anderson wheeling around <laughs> the stage in a wheelchair as opposed to dancing around with his flute. You know, I will say there was a big difference between the performance in 1984 uh, and the performance in, in 2009. Musically, I think that the band has improved. They are incredible, incredible musicians. Their talents is so vast that, that they incorporate so many different instruments into their shows. Um, however, Ian Anderson, uh, for whatever reason, cannot sing Eight. very well anymore. Yeah. 25 yeah. years you know, of yeah. hard rock life. Yeah. And, you know, to his credit, I mean, he is an older guy and he's still out and he's still putting in the grind, but um, you can see that the, the years have taken its toll on him. And it, and it could very well just be that it's, you know, the singing has taken the toll on him. He's you know, blown out his voice, but what a great show. I would, having said that, I didn't think he could sing as well as he used to. I think that the show in 2009 was even better than when I went in 1984. One more little bit, bit of uh, toll trivia. His, uh, Ian Anderson's chief occupation right now is salmon farmer. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that great? Yeah, he is a salmon farmer. And quite an interesting guy. You know, when, when you just see him in an interview, he looks just like an old music professor he, and he sounds like one too yeah anyway that's rock tail hour by some hardcore uh, jethro toll fans that's right thanks tim that was a great rock tail hour on jethro toll broadsword uh this is probably a great uh, opportunity for you to use the link on our website www.rocktailhour.com you can click on it we are an iTunes affiliate. It'll take you right to iTunes, and you can hear this song that you've undoubtedly never heard before. <laughs> and anyone who has, please let us know. Yeah, actually, go out to Facebook and tell us, hey, I've heard Broadsword before, and it's awesome. We, we really appreciate you listening to us. Uh, we'd appreciate you going to our page at Facebook and liking us or following us on Twitter. Until the next Rock Tale Hour, rock on. Rock on.